0: And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word as we take a look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This is a wonderfully encouraging chapter. It contains three parables in it. We're going to look at the first two in verses 1 through 10. We're looking at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. we will be... And then next week, we will look at the parable of the prodigal sons. I'm very much looking forward to all of these as we find encouragement from this passage. So let's listen carefully as I read the words of Christ from Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes Grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go once more in prayer and ask God's blessing on our text today. Oh, God in heaven, we do ask that you would help us to understand this passage that's in front of us. Help us to know what it is that it says, but, and more, believe what it says. Help us to take this word into our minds and let it work into our hearts that it may change us, and that we may love you even more. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what makes God... Rejoice. What makes God and the angels in heaven together throw a celebration? We might be surprised to hear that it is in fact repentance of a sinner. This is what gives God cause for rejoicing. We might be surprised by that, but why? I think the reason why we're surprised by that is because we are not like that. When someone wrongs us and then comes back and says, well, I'm sorry that I wronged you. I repented that. Most of the time, if, if it's me, I'll, I'll say, it's like, well, yeah, it's about time. Glad you finally come around to see the error of your ways. And we're more perturbed than we are joyful that they've repented. But we find that God, as usual, gloriously, is different from us. It's different from us in that he has a deep love and joy over his children and those that repent. And we can see this spelled out in this passage. So we are going to look at our usual two points today. They're going to kind of inter, uh, overlap, and we're going to go back and forth through this parable because it's repeated twice. There's not going to be a clear delineation between these two, but this is going to be the two themes we're going to see stretched to this passage. The first point, the first theme is going to be that God is the one who finds those who are lost. God seeks out and finds those who are lost. And secondly, God rejoices over those who repent. God rejoices over those who repent. You can see that in a little, um, we have an insert in the bulletin. Those two points are written down for you. Um, But we're going to be looking at these here in this passage. So first... Luke chapter 15. Luke is setting up this next series of parables by showing us a scene. And here we have Jesus is teaching the crowds, as is his habit. He does this frequently. And though there is a crowd that's growing, it's growing with the wrong sort of people, at least according to the Pharisees anyway. This crowd is a bunch of tax collectors and sinners that are coming around to hear Jesus teach. Now, we've become very familiar with the term tax collector and sinner, and it sort of loses its impact on us. We don't have face-to-face interactions with the IRS here in this country, thankfully. So we, we are not used to having an animosity towards a particular group of people. But these tax collectors were absolutely despised. Here, from an ancient preacher, his name is John Chrysostom. He was a preacher in the 300s, and he spoke of tax collectors this way and how they were viewed in their society. It says, the tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of specious greed. Greed. What these people would do, these tax collectors, would have been traitors to their own people to collect taxes for the Romans. And on top of that, they would charge extra tax to line their own pockets. They were often very wealthy because they were corrupt. It's not like you could go online to the IRS website and find out exactly how much you owed. That wasn't around at that time. So they had to just rely on these people that were known for their greed and their corruption if we were to put it, trying to put it in modern terms of who would be gathering around Jesus, the best that I could come up with is imagine abortion doctors and those fill in the blank of who you think is the worst sinner that you can imagine. These are the people that are gathering around Jesus to hear him. But there's another group of people that are gathering around. These sinners are rubbing shoulders with the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the ones who know God's law and God's book better than anyone else around. But they're not here to listen. They're here to grumble and murmur. The word being used here for complaining or grumbling is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for the children of Israel when they were grumbling against God for being in the wilderness and saying that God hadn't provided for them when he had provided for them plenty. God hates that, by the way, grumbling and complaining. But this is what they're doing. But what are they saying? What are they grumbling about? Well, they're saying, in a rather derisive term, this man, talking about Jesus, who is receiving sinners and eats with them. This was scandalous at this time to have dinner with a tax collector or someone who was known for their sin. Because in some way, this was legitimizing them. This was accepting them. And this was something that the Pharisees could not do. Tolerate. Imagine having the local abortion doctor over for dinner or inviting them to your wedding. This would be the same sorts of questions would be in our mind. What will people think we think of them by having them in our lives in this way? Now, such an idea is abhorrent to the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees wouldn't even teach the law to people like that. They wouldn't even bother evangelizing people who were like that. But did they have a point? Because if we're going to look in other places in Scripture, like, for example, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 1. In Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, what does it tell us? Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not In the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It seemed to be as those that would avoid contact with those who would be sinful are the ones who are blessed. We could look in other places. Uh, We don't have time to turn there. But in Proverbs 1, we find the wisest man instructing his son says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold your foot back from their paths, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. There are other places that we could point to. So how are we supposed to deal with this? On the one hand, it looks like we're not supposed to have contact with sinful people. But on the other hand, Jesus seems to be doing the exact opposite. What's going on? This is one of those tensions that we find in Scripture, and I think that this can be resolved here. What I think that we're doing, and what the Old Testament is and other places in, in the Bible are telling us, is to not join in with their sin. We don't get to say, well, I'm trying to reach these people, so I'm going to do all the evil things that they're doing. No, we don't get to do that. This <laughs> is so Psalm 1, Proverbs 1, and other places that we could point to. But if we, were, if, they were, if we were supposed to never talk to them, how are we supposed to hear the truth? How are they supposed to do that? To put it in a short way, when we are interacting with other people, the truth is never sacrificed for the sake of the relationship. We have to tell people the truth. But there needs to be a relationship or they'll never hear the truth. We're supposed to go out and find those that we would think are are all but cast away from society and from hope. And we need to bring Jesus to them. It's a both and. Uh, Pastor Reader, is a uh, pastor over at Briarwood uses the illustration of a doctor. So a doctor is supposed to tend to the sick, but he's not supposed to contract the disease himself. And he's supposed to be honest with the patient. If a doctor wouldn't tell a patient about a terminal illness because of how the patient might react, then we would call that malpractice. But by the same token, if that doctor never saw a patient because he said, I don't deal with sick people, then we would also call that malpractice. We would be guilty of spiritual malpractice if we say we have nothing to do with these people over here. We have no reason to bring them the gospel because I don't want to be stained by that. We can't take that approach. But at the same token, we don't get to say, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to dive into as much sin as they're doing because that's the only way I can reach out to them. No, that's not the case either. This is being a light in a dark place, not turning off your lamp in a dark place. Blessedly, this is the approach that Jesus takes, the approach of reaching out To the sinner. And that's what he's going to lay out here in these next three parables. We're going to look at just the first two today, and we'll take a look at the third one next week. But what we'll see is this common theme of God's initiating the relationship, of going out and finding those lost souls and bringing them back and rejoicing over them. So let's take a look at this first parable this one of the shepherd and the sheep. So this man has a hundred sheep, and depending on who you ask, uh, he is either very wealthy or he's um, kind of more modest means. Commentaries would seem to differ on that. I'm not an expert on sheep flock economics, so we're just going to have to go with what we've got here. But either way, he has lost 1% of his flock. 99% of the flock has made it back from their days of feeding, but there's one that has gone missing. Now, it represents a very small loss from a raw number standpoint, but this is a good shepherd. He loves his sheep. He doesn't say, well, sometimes you lose a few. It's the cost of doing business. No, he doesn't do that. But instead, he leaves the 99. He's not leaving them defenseless. At the time, shepherds would have had multiple people working with them, so he would have left the 99 sheep under the care of someone else and those here in Jesus' time would have known that. And he, the shepherd, goes out to find this lost sheep. And he goes and he searches until he finds it. He's not going to give up. And he goes until he discovers it. Now, if it would be me, I might be scolding this sheep, even though it can't, really can't hear me, but it'd feel better in the moment. It's to say, why'd you run off like that? This seems like an awful lot of work for a future sweater. You know, why am I chasing this thing? By now, you probably mostly have seen that video that's been circulated around Facebook the last couple of weeks of that sheep that got stuck in this kind of ditch-like thing. And the guy works real hard and pulls the thing out by its leg, and it goes jumping freely and then dives right back into the ditch and gets stuck a second time. At worst, I'd be annoyed at what's going on here. But that's not the attitude of this shepherd. This shepherd is actually quite joyful to have discovered this sheep. And what he does is he hoists the sheep onto his shoulders. By the way, this would have been about a 75 to 100 pound animal that he's hoisting onto his shoulders. Because the sheep, having wandered this far, would have been too weak to get all the way back. So he's carrying this thing, imagining hoisting a golden retriever onto your back and carrying this thing back. And he's practically singing on his way back to the homestead. And then he gathers his friends and his neighbors together to have a celebration that once was lost has now been found. That is a good shepherd. That's a shepherd that watches over his flock carefully. Now we can see and understand this from a somewhat human level, of finding something that is lost and being joyful about it, but that's not all that this parable is talking about. It's not about human joy, it's about divine joy that God is experiencing. The same joy that this man feels when he finds his lost sheep is the same way that God reacts to finding a sinner and bringing him to repentance. This is very different than how every other religion views God. Every other religion in the world agrees that there is something wrong with us. We have done something to offend God. But every other religion, except Christianity, every other one says you've got to work your way back in. And we're coming back to a God with crossed arms and a scowled face and trying to earn our way back into his good graces. That's how most other religions think about God. And unfortunately, there are sometimes even some of us Christians can fall into that approach, too, can't we? We think that God is going to look at us when we have repented for the 90th time and you can look at us and say, you again? That's not what God is like. That God will joyfully receive those who repent. That he is a loving father. And that he is going out to find those who are lost and bring them back into his fold. That's him. He'll lose not one. Spurgeon imagines a story of Jesus, the good shepherd, going after his flock and Satan trying to keep some for himself. Flock's been wandering around in Satan's territory. So Satan makes the argument, like, well, these sheep are mine because they're in my territory. But But the Lord says, no, I have marked them with my blood. Their seal, my seal is upon them. They are mine. And Jesus insists that every member of this flock belongs to him. But Satan tries one last trick to keep a little lamb for himself. And Spurgeon picks up here, speaking as if Satan was talking. He finds one little lamb and says, this is such a little one. This is so weak. Thou wouldst not have such a shriveled, scabby one as this in thy bright flock, thou fair shepherd of God. But Jesus said, sooner than lose one of them, I will die again. And shed my blood once more to buy it back. All that my father gave me, I will have. Now, Jesus doesn't have to die multiple times. That one sacrifice was enough to cover. But this gives a picture of the love that Jesus has for each and every one of his flock. There is no one who is beyond his saving or anyone who is beyond his joyful reception. So we don't have to look at a sinner and say, well, that guy's beyond hope. No, not when we're talking about Jesus here. He loves bringing sinners to repentance. It's his favorite thing to do. Philip Reichen put it this way. No one enjoys the salvation of a sinner any more than Jesus does. So when we tell him how grateful we are that he saved us, he can truly say, it was my pleasure. No one delights in a salvation of a sinner more than Jesus does. Now, do you believe that? I know you know it, but do you believe that? Does it make a difference in how you approach God? Does it make a difference in how you think about those other people in your life that are not believers yet? Does this make a difference when you pull your head up realizing that you've sinned yet again and wonder if God will hear you? This will make a tremendous difference in your life. This is not minimizing your sin. It's like, oh, well, it's not a big deal. God will just forgive you. No, that's not the case at all. If we realize how much God loves us, we wouldn't want to sin against someone like that. If we were to think that God was some sort of unreasonable tyrant, we might be able to excuse sin. But we can't. Because he's been so good to us. He's been so loving to us. How could we sin against something like that? This magnificent grace that he gives to each of us. Sometimes it's downright scandalous, his grace. Infamous criminal Ted Bundy made a profession of faith when he was on death row for the rape and murder of over 30 women. Now, assuming that his faith was genuine, God rejoiced when he brought that soul home. Sit with that for a minute. That he would rejoice in the repentance of a serial murderer? This doesn't mean that what Ted did wasn't wrong. Very far from it. What he did was the greatest of evils that you can do. But if Ted truly put his faith in Jesus, then Jesus bore God's wrath for all of those sins that he committed. And that he could extend grace to this repentant soul. It still sounds kind of crazy to think about that, doesn't it? We want to look at God and say, this man would forgive that one. But we only think like that when we think that we don't need that forgiveness as well. And the fact that I need his forgiveness. Jesus was just as happy to see me repent as seeing Mr. Bundy repent. Because we both needed that salvation. I might look better on the outside. I might not have committed those sins that he did, but I still, need, I still need rescue. The hatred in my heart and the lust in my heart deserves hell's flames just as much as Ted's outer actions did. His more heinous, but still deserve that punishment. Because no matter how righteous you think you are, you need repentance. That's why I think here at the end of this parable, Jesus is being sarcastic. And this parable is being told to the Pharisees because the Pharisees have been grumbling about him in verse 2. And then in verse 3, it says, so he told them this parable, reacting to what the Pharisees are saying. Jesus is saying that there is more joy over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous person who need no repentance. But of course, everyone needs Repentance. I think that Jesus is responding to the thought, How can Jesus eat with those sinners? And then, well, Jesus replies, There is more joy in this tax collector's true repentance than all your false posturing of self righteousness ever could. What this invites us to do is to drop the actor's mask off our face. God is not impressed with our attempts at self reform. That's not it. You need more than that. He's not impressed with the mask that we put up in front of other people. Maybe we've got other people can fooled. We don't have God fooled. And what this is, this is an invitation. The fact that no matter what ugliness is behind that mask that we hide from other people, that God can forgive and restore and delights to draw you out of not going to leave you in that sin, but it's going to pull you out and away from that. That's what he invites us to do, to find real repentance in the power of Christ and trust in him instead of self-reform. But maybe that invitation didn't stick. So Jesus tells us another parable here in verse 8. When Hebrews wanted to emphasize something, they would say it Twice. That's why sometimes when Jesus starts a parable or starts a teaching, he starts out saying, verily, verily, or truly, truly. Because he wants to emphasize, this is something that you really, is really important. Do you really have to understand? So he gives us the second parable. What's the point he wants us to get? Is that God rejoices at the repentance of sinners. We don't have to come to him cowering and wondering if he's going to forgive. We can come to him with tears in our eyes, with gratitude, that even as horrible of a sinner as we are, that we can be forgiven and that God can joyfully embrace us to transform us. That's why Jesus repeats this message not once, not twice, but three times. We'll see the third one next week. But for now, take a look at this second parable. In verse 8, this is a woman who has lost 10 silver coins, which would... Uh, Each of these silver coins would have been worth about a day's wage. So depending on what sort of work you're doing, between $60 and $100, she's lost. Probably represented a lot of her savings that were in this. And here, this woman is a central character, which was odd for teaching at the time. Most teaching would have only encountered male characters. But here, Jesus is reaching all of his audience. To make sure that both men and women understand that this offer is for them. But also illustrates this woman's same joy when she finds this coin represents the joy of God as well. And here what she does is she loses this coin in her house. Houses at this time would have been about the size of a one-car garage There would have been little slits in the wall for lights. It would have been pretty dark in there. So if you'd lost something, you would need to light a little lamp and dust around as you're looking for it. And here's that's what she's doing. And she finds her coin and calls together her friends and neighbors to rejoice in the fact that she has recovered 10% of her savings that she had lost. I don't know how many more times and how many more ways Jesus can tell you this. That he is delighted to save. And that he calls you today. If you're here today, either here in this building or watching online, God is calling out to you. You being here or you listening to this is not an accident. But it is God seeking you because he's done something incredible because you might say it was like, well, I understand that God is forgiving, but how can he do that? Is he just sweeping my sins under the rug? Not at all. As we learned day in Sunday school, God sent a substitute for us. See, what we should have done, all of our sins, what they truly deserve, even the ones that we think are really, really small and don't have any impact, all of those things deserve eternal punishment, punishment that goes on forever and ever and ever, because the person that we have committed an offense to is the highest person that we can offend. There's no court in any land or in any universe that is higher than God. Any sin that we commit is treasonous and deserves death for all of eternity. But then he sent his son to die on the cross for us, to take the penalty of all of that sin. So with all of that sin being taken on him, he's taking it away from us. And the wrath of God that was aimed at us can now be turned away because it's satisfied. And then Jesus died on that cross, but then rose from the dead and ascends into heaven and is now seeking out those sheep. That's why someone like Bundy can be forgiven. It's not because Bundy prayed so well for forgiveness. It's because Jesus died. The son of God sacrificed himself. What bigger payment could you ask for? So because we know that we have had that big of a payment, we can look very honestly at our state. When we get those statements in the mail about the state of our student loan debt or our mortgages, there's a certain amount of hesitation as we come to because we don't want to see what that number is. But if we knew that we had someone with infinite money who was going to pay all of our debts now and forever, we would gladly open up those envelopes and find out how much we owe. Because we know it's taken care of. And that's what we can come to with Christ. So if you don't know Christ here today, I would tell you, seek the Lord while he may be found. He's looking for you. And you can find rest for your soul today. Because if you don't, all that awaits is hell. All that awaits is eternal punishment. I don't want you to go through that. You don't have to. So that's our takeaway if you are, are not a believer. Don't leave this building until you've solved that for yourself if you're unsure. I would love to talk to you about that, by the way. But what about for those of us who have come to Christ, who are walking with him, who have been pulled out of the ditch and brought home? Well, if God joyfully seeks out the lost, then we should be about that business as well that we should delight to see people coming to faith and that it might require us to go over the hedges, walk through those spiny bushes to get to the one that God would desire to have and bring those home. I know that our culture has fallen to rather frightening and frankly disgusting lows But our day-to-day attitude of that culture shouldn't be, I just can't wait to get away from these people or I wish God would just strike them all down. No, we pray for their salvation knowing that it is God who seeks and saves and that he is glad to do so even through us. He uses means to seek out his people. One of those means is preaching. Another of those means is y'all's day-to-day interactions with the people in your lives, those that you have contact with and can make an impact for the gospel, having them over for dinner, even when others might raise their eyebrows as to why you're having that one over for dinner, is to bring them the truth, to bring them the gospel, to bring them hope. So let's go find some lost sheep. Let's pray boldly for bold sinners and let's rejoice with heaven when we see God's glorious answer to those prayers. Let's go to him now.